Welcome to Crime Spot, your podcast on organized crime, with a special episode dedicated to organized crime on our oceans. Today, we explore modern day piracy, featuring maritime security expert Dr. Dirk Siebels. Welcome everyone to another episode of Crime Spot, your podcast on organized crime. We're so happy that you've chosen to be with us today. We have another special episode dedicated to organized crime on our oceans today, and I'm here with my co-host Felix. Felix, what do we have in, in store for us today? Yeah, hello everyone, also from my side. So today we look at modern day piracy, actually, and we explore a bit on how it manifests itself in the 21st century because obviously we are not living in the times of uh, Captain Jack Sparrows anymore. And we were curious to explore this topic a bit further. So um, we will look behind the groups that um, are committing these kind of crimes, how this crime actually looks like in our days. And yeah, a bit of what can be done. And for that, we have a special guest today. Absolutely. We're super lucky to have with us maritime security expert, Dr. Dirk Siebels. His interest in maritime security started at quite a young age. He worked for the Navy for about six years, the, the German Navy, I should say. And then he moved on to being a journalist for various newspapers and magazines, uh, as well as became a freelance public relations consultant. And that brought him to where we are today. And through his PhD research, he is currently now working as an analyst for security for a security intelligence company. And he primarily focuses on maritime security issues in West and Central Africa. Absolutely. And for those of you interested in checking out his most recent book, it's called Maritime Security in East and West Africa, A Tale of Two Regions. And we will link that in the show notes. But without further ado, let's get started with the interview. Dirk, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Okay, in, in your own words, could you maybe give us a definition of what piracy is, what it means, and maybe also to what extent is it different from simply uh, a robbery against a fishing vessel, for example? Yes, so um, in my own words, it's a bit complicated because there are some legal definitions. Um, and uh, there's also differences between the legal definitions and what it actually means for seafarers. Now, to explain that very simply, there is a... Uh, UN document, the United States, uh, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, which has a legal definition for piracy, um, and that by and large means that it happens on the high seas or anything outside of territorial waters. So territorial waters is the area 12 nautical miles from the coastline of any country, so that's about 20, 24 kilometers. Um, in that area, the same laws that apply on land also apply at sea. So any attack against a, a vessel um, in that area is a theft or is a robbery, is an armed robbery. So it's essentially the same laws apply like those apply on land. From a seafarer's perspective, of course, it's not really different whether your ship is attacked 11 nautical miles from the coastline or 13 nautical miles. So it makes a difference in legal terms, but it doesn't make a difference in practical terms. Um, that's the main uh, the main problem and the main issue when you look at statistics. So whether something is actually counted as piracy or as armed robbery. Um, so there are a lot of statistics um, where you can see uh, a, a combination where it talks about piracy and armed robbery at sea, um, which basically combines all these things from a practical point of view. 
Um, but when you're talking about a legal definition, and um, that is, of course, important for law enforcement agencies in certain countries to actually do something about this, then um, it's, a, it's a separate issue. Thank you so much. And on, on that note, I had two questions. So first, does that mean that um, when we are counting piracy acts, actually the, the statistics mean something very different from reality on the ground because you have piracy acts that are just not being counted as um, piracy and therefore dealt with different set of institutions and different kind of legislation. And my second question was, so we kind of touched upon it in the first question that piracy is an attack on a vessel. But I think a lot of us have this idea of piracy of, you know, Captain Jack Sparrow on his boat, um, attacking another, <laughs> another one and trying to find treasure. But in, in the 21st century, what does piracy look like? What does, what does it entail? And how do pirates actually make money? Yeah, that was pretty much the same when I was doing my PhD. So I started in 2012. So that's when everybody was thinking about Somali piracy. So at least that was a step into the 21st century. Um, it's uh, not easy. I mean, coming to the first question, first of all, there are problems about statistics, um, not so much because of the legal perspective, I think. It's more about whether um, shipping companies or ships and crews on ships actually report incidents and there are some questions around it and there have a lot of have been a lot of publications a lot of people have talked about under reporting about these incidents not taking place or not not becoming part of official statistics and that's due to reputation management shipping companies being concerned about the reputation of their ships being attacked it's also about maybe crews and shipping companies not actually wanting to deal with the investigations because that means that a ship has to remain in port for an investigation so it can't actually trade it can't, can't actually go to sea it can't make money so um, whether it actually makes sense to report something um, is is a separate question that depends on a number of factors and that complicates things because it means that statistics may or may not be very accurate and this has been a very big problem for a for a very long time so um that of course has an has a knock-on impact on law enforcement on how governments think about the problem uh, how how this is perceived as a, as a problem because the shipping industry for example might talk from one perspective because they know the reality of the situation but these may not be part of official statistics so for a for a government they may say well this is not such a big problem after all because the statistics clearly show that this is not such a such a big problem so that has been an issue for a long time now the second part of the question what does piracy look like in the 21st century um again it's a bit different because there are i want to say roughly speaking different types of incidents on the one hand you've got really petty crime, um, small-scale thefts or, or armed robberies from from ships that may not involve or that very often not don't involve any violence against the crew. So it's people climbing on a ship while it's at anchor, in some cases when it's even in the port, um, and just go on deck and, and see whatever you can get your hands on. So that might be spare parts, robes, anything that you can sell on a local market. So that's very similar basically to a domestic break-in. 
But of course, it's not very pleasant for seafarers to be involved in that because that ship is not only the place where they are working, but it's also the place where they are living. So it is like a domestic break-in for, for many purposes, um, but a domestic break-in while you're at home. And of course, that's not a very pleasant experience. So this is one type, um, but this is not particularly organized. This is small-scale crime and the displacement effect. If there's any better law enforcement, the displacement effect would be very localized. So there might be more domestic break-ins or more other sorts of petty crime. On the other side of the, the spectrum, you've got very organized, high-profile incidents. And there's been, in, in over, over the past, there's been hijackings, for example, of product tankers, so um, tanker vessels that are carrying refined oil products, gasoline, kerosene, all types of refined products. And these, these vessels were hijacked, and then parts of the cargo were transferred at sea um, to another waiting vessel, or in some cases to two or three other waiting vessels. Um, now, that's a pretty sophisticated operation. It takes some time, it takes a lot of preparation, it takes a lot of organization, um, and you're stealing quite significant amounts of cargo that you want to um, resale on somewhere on, on the black market. So that's much more complicated. And then, of course, you're talking about transnational organized crime. Now, that has been a problem, particularly in Southeast Asia in the past, but also in West Africa more recently. Um, but that has been more or less dealt with because um, it takes some time to do this kind of operation. And, and navies and law enforcement agencies have made it quite clear that they will intervene in these incidents. Now, at the moment, the main threat that we're talking about are more kidnap for ransom attacks against um, seafarers. And again, this has been a problem in the past, also in Southeast Asia, particularly um, conducted by the Abu Sayyaf group in the Philippines um, or by groups affiliated with the Abu Sayyaf group. Um, it's also a massive problem in the Gulf of Guinea, in, in Western Central Africa, where um, there has been a lot of talk about this uh, for, for, for the recent months, um, essentially. And um, in this case, a lot of ships are getting attacked and seafarers are being kidnapped from those ships to be put in, in hostage camps and then um, for a ransom to be collected. So um, this is a much more, also a very violent type of incident, but it, it's a much quicker type of attack because you only need very little time on the actual ship and it gives navies and law enforcement agencies very little time to actually respond to such incidents. Yeah, and, and I think it was also one of these incidents only in past month, right, in, in January, even with a, a casualty in front of the coast of Nigeria. Yeah, exactly. There was... Um, yeah, there was, it was an attack against a container ship um, that was coming from Lagos in Nigeria and going to South Africa. And it was attacked uh, pretty far off the Nigerian coastline, actually, um, but nevertheless by a Nigerian group. So um, the attackers actually went on board and they made their way into a, into a safe room where the crew was trying to hide. Um, and they, they shot into this room and unfortunately one of the seafarers was killed and 15 others were uh, taken as hostages to Nigeria, and they were released about three weeks later, um, very likely because a ransom was paid to the to the kidnappers. And you've kind of touched upon this already, but um, because we're, we're speaking of Nigeria, there have been a lot of reports in the media that the pirates are Nigerian-based. And so my question was, you know, who are the who are the pirates? Who are the actors involved in these um, incidents of piracy? And 
to what extent are they linked to other forms of organized crime? Yeah, it's a very good question. And um, essentially, there's a lot of talk about pirate groups or pirate networks. And I think that's pretty, pretty lazy analysis, because you have to talk about the whole, the broader picture of organized crime. Um, and these are groups. So Nigeria or the Niger Delta region in particular is massively complicated. So I mean, we could we could have a couple of podcasts about this, probably. Um, but by and large, there has been a lot of political, um, politically or political motivated violence in the past. And that has been kind of hijacked by organized criminals as well. Um, so they're using this kind of operating environment where you have a lack of law enforcement, a lack of security forces to engage in all kinds of uh, criminal activity. So that includes smuggling of all kinds of goods. So not only drugs or weapons and not the kind of illegal goods that, that are usually referred to in smuggling, but you're talking about fuel smuggling or agricultural products or timber. And all of this has a, a massive um, profit range. So this is very, very lucrative. And there are customs officers in Nigeria being shot and killed over rice smuggling. And you think, this on the face of it, this sounds ridiculous, but it's massively lucrative for the gangs involved. So we're talking about organized criminal groups that are involved in different types of activities. And one of these activities are kidnappings, unfortunately. And that is mainly related or has been related in the past to more or less um, land-based kidnappings. Um, and kidnappings have been a major security threat across Nigeria for a long period of time. And it has expanded to land-based, uh, to, to maritime kidnappings, but still land-based in the sense of you still have infrastructure in place on land. You still need hostage camps to keep your hostages. You still need foot soldiers to guard them while they're being kept. Um, and you need experienced negotiators because this is really a, an organized criminal activity. So this is not something that you just plan overnight. So there has to be infrastructure in place. And um, while it has spread to affect other countries, um, the hostages um, in these cases, when they're, when they're taken from merchant ships, when they're taken from, from vessels in the region, um, they're always brought back to Nigeria and they're always released in Nigeria. So we're talking about Nigerian groups or Niger Delta-based groups um, that are spreading out to sea to a, to a significant degree. So by that extent, it, it does affect other countries as well. One of the cases probably best known in the 21st century to the, to the general public is like this uh, idea of Captain Phillips Somali piracy. But recently we have seen a shift from East to West Africa. Maybe you could elaborate a bit on, on why that is. Yeah, I mean, coming back to my, my PhD days, Captain Phillips was pretty much released in the middle of my PhD. So that was always good to refer to when I was talking about that I'm, I'm working on maritime security. And then everybody knew exactly what I'm doing because they had seen Captain Phillips. So that was quite good. Um, it, it is, in fact, a little bit broader than that. And there are other issues. Um, as I said, we're talking about various illicit activities at sea taking place. And to an extent, that's very much the case in the Indian Ocean of Somalia. Um, and that's very comparable to the situation in the Gulf of Guinea. There are many things that are not comparable, but the fact that there are things that are interwoven um, and you only have piracy in an area where there is a lack of navies or the, a lack of law enforcement at sea, a lack of good governance at sea. Otherwise, it couldn't be happening in the first place. And and by the same token, there are, there are also areas where there's a lot of illegal fishing, there's a lot of 
um, smuggling, a lot of other activities taking place at sea. Now, um, piracy of Somalia, um, a couple of years ago, really caught a lot of headlines and caught the attention of politicians, of the general public, etc. I don't think there has been a shift in incidents as such from East Africa to West Africa, but there has certainly been a shift in attention um, because for a number of years when Somali piracy was not really dominating the headlines, I mean, it was still, um, there was still a lot of other issues to deal with, but a lot of people, um, as you said, I mean, a lot of people would, would refer to Somali piracy as, you know, this is something that I have heard about or that I have read. Um, and that's certainly the case also for, for policymakers. Um, there was a lot of naval attention on this problem and there were a lot of, um, a lot of countermeasures, a lot of naval operations taking place. Also the shipping industry kind of, um, privatizing security, employing privately contracted armed guards on, on vessels. So there were a lot of efforts to actually suppress piracy, but I would say that, um, piracy has been suppressed, not completely eradicated because all these other factors, the, the lack of law enforcement at sea, that's very much still in place. Um, so piracy in West Africa had been a problem um, for a number of years. And in fact, if you go back to the early 1980s, um, the very first um, talks at the International Maritime Organization, which is the UN body for anything maritime, and the first talks about piracy had been very much influenced by incidents in West Africa. This is 1982, 1983. So it's not that this has not been an issue uh, in the past, but it has been a relatively constant issue. And Somali piracy kind of led to a lot of attention on the problem of piracy. Um, and then when that was very much suppressed and there's no, there's been no real incident over the past couple of years, you can kind of see the, the, the attention shift towards West Africa in the, in the more recent past. Also coupled with the, with the fact that kidnappings have become, have become much more of a, of a problem um, for the shipping industry and certainly for seafarers. Um, but again, that has taken place in the past as well without a lot of um, political attention, without a lot of media attention on, on this problem. Um, so I think it's more of an attention shift rather than uh, a, a real shift of the problem. No, and there's, there's so much to unpack there in, in your response because you touch upon the, the intersection between the public and the private sector, but also the need for this global coordinated response. Um, and and so when there is a piracy act, given that technically or legally it's supposed to happen on the high seas, who is supposed to answer to that? Is it based on the where the organized crime group or the piracy group is based? Or how how do you intervene even then um if it's if it's happening on the high seas? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's a very complicated question to answer as well. So there's been a lot of debate about that, especially in the Indian Ocean related to Somali piracy. So is it the responsibility of the flag state? So any ship has to be registered in a certain country. Um, but then most ships are registered in countries like um, Panama, Liberia. So in countries where there's just not a lot of naval um, capabilities, and they couldn't send their navies to the region. Um, and then shipping companies are based in in other countries so it's the, the the owner of the ship is based in one country it's registered in another country it might actually be chartered to another company in another country so there are a lot of international interests um at play so the shipping industry is very international by nature so who's responsible um 
is a very complicated question to answer from a political point of view. From a legal point of view, um, in a piracy incident, anything taking place on the high seas, everybody can intervene. Um, so any Navy that is working in the region, um, they can intervene in case of a piracy incident. Again, this comes back to a political question. So are they not only able, but also willing to intervene in these incidents? Or are they just providing a response after something has happened, after the, the pirates maybe have left the vessel? So this is, this is a question. Navies are operating based on political mandates. And these political mandates are possibly different in different countries. And this question has been debated at length in the Indian Ocean in all these counter-piracy missions of Somalia. And that has been answered. Um, to a large degree. Um, it is a question that is very valid at the moment in the context of West Africa, in the context of the Gulf of Guinea, um, because what, what will happen if a ship gets attacked and the, the attackers are still on board? Um, does a Navy then intervene? Do they actually send a boarding team, um, which might actually endanger the crew because you don't know what's going to happen? Or are they waiting until the pirates or the, the perpetrators, and not pirates until they're convicted, of course, until the, the perpetrators are leaving the ship and then just provide assistance um, to the to the remainder of the crew because some people may have been kidnapped. So this is a this is a complicated question and um, yeah it's, it's it's problematic and it's based on on a lot of political considerations in the background very often. And just following up on that, um, the and it's going on a bit of a, a tangent, but the the Chinese government is building up a lot of ports in the Gulf of Guinea as part of its one belt, one road um initiative and so can we expect a higher securitization on behalf of the chinese government in that area as well i think it's there's not going to be a lot of chinese involvement in in the gulf of guinea in terms of in terms of a military response um the chinese navy got involved in the indian ocean um in the context of somali piracy they actually built a naval base in djibouti and there were a lot of headlines around that because it's um, it's, a, it's a foreign naval base, which is very um, unusual, of course, for the, or was unusual at the time for the Chinese Navy, and it kind of represented the expanding um, expanding power of, of, of the of Chinese, or the expanding Chinese influence, basically, in the region. Um, and that was certainly part of the story. Um, so it was a very convenient way to say, we're engaged in counter-piracy operations, but we also happen to be present um, in the broader Middle East, which is strategically quite important. Um, there is no such strategic importance in uh, Western Central Africa. There are important countries in terms of trading partners, etc., and there have been attacks against Chinese vessels, but not to the extent that there will be a massive military presence or a massive naval presence by by Chinese forces, I don't think, at least not in the foreseeable future. There might be a Chinese vessel deploying to the region at some point, um, but I haven't heard any, any plans about that. And I don't think there's going to be a significant or at least a, a permanent presence or something like that in the foreseeable future. Pretty uh, practical question, but what can a crew actually do uh, in a pirate attack, like what are what is the repertoire of uh, standard operating procedures against an attack? 
Uh, there's a lot of things that they can do to actually prevent an attack, first of all. Um, so in again, in the context of Somali piracy, there has been a um, publication called the Best Management Practices. And this has been put together by, broadly speaking, the shipping industry and security agencies. So a lot of shipping industry organizations, insurers, navies, etc. they all gave their input. And there's a lot of um, very practical recommendations, um, like making it, uh, that would make it harder to actually board a ship at sea so things like physical measures putting razor wire along the railing etc etc so just to, to make it harder to board the ship and to actually deter attackers and if they make it on board to actually delay them um, so that the crew can go into the citadel which is kind of a safe room on a ship which is supposedly um, a, a room where they can stay for a significant period of time without the attackers actually getting to them. So it's not completely safe. You can, you can breach any room on a ship given enough time, but this would buy you enough time to actually call for help, send a distress call, and then wait for assistance. So it's very similar to anything that happens on land if you call the police, except that at sea, this may take significantly longer if there's not a Navy ship in the, in the immediate vicinity. So there's a lot of these things that can be done um, in terms of putting hardware in place, putting physical measures in place, also making sure that the crew knows what to do in case of an attack. Um, so having a vigilant crew, making sure that they're um, looking, uh, that they're standing on the bridge, looking out for potential attacks so that everybody is warned at least, and that they can actually go to the Citadel and then make sure that everybody knows what to do in case of an attack, that they do go to the Citadel, that they do know where where that is. And there have been cases in the past, um, I've been working on some cases in West Africa where one crew member, for example, was kidnapped um, from the ship because the rest of the crew actually went to the Citadel and this was a, a cadet on his first voyage, um, which is a very rubbish experience to begin with, but um, he probably just didn't know what to do in case of an attack. And um, there's a, I mean, that points to a lack of preparation or a lack of um, regular drills um, just to make sure that, that everybody knows what to do in these cases. So um, that can be done. And that means that you have more time to actually call for help, to wait for assistance and to make sure that, yes, a ship might be attacked and, and yes, it might actually be boarded, which is a traumatic experience so not to say anything about that, that is not a very pleasant experience for any seafarer. But at least you have a slightly better outcome in that nobody is kidnapped or nobody is taken from the ship. And there, there is some, some help um, on the way and they uh, navies are actually able to provide assistance. So, yeah, these, these management or best management practices are something that is that has been put in place in the context and, and they have been updated relatively frequently since so that's the main practical approach that that shipping companies or, or ship operators can actually work with yeah on, yeah i think it's probably also impossible to get 100 percent safety and security on board of these ships I, I think i remember from the uh captain phillips case that they actually did a drill like the day before or like short time before they got boarded. So, um, yeah, on that note, you were mentioning already that some shipping companies opted for, uh, employing, deploying private security personnel on board of ships. And I was wondering against the backdrop of like law enforcement challenges, do you think that's going to be a trend or is that, is that a trend already? An increased privatization of security? No, it's a good question whether it's a trend. Um, I would say it has been around for 
10, 12 years. So there has been a lot of talk about how the private in or the, the private sector can play an important role in providing security to the shipping industry. Um, and again, there have been a lot of legal arguments about this because um, what has to happen to actually allow privately contracted armed guards on a ship, um, which, as I said, I mean, any ship is registered in a certain country and that country may not allow privately contracted security personnel to carry weapons. So if you're looking at, at um, Germany or Scandinavian countries, for example, if you go to a bank, even if there's a security guard standing there, they wouldn't carry a weapon. So why would a German flagship or a Danish flagship or a Sweden flagship, why would they allow um, privately contracted armed security personnel on that ship? Because that is basically a, 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 a German island, a Danish island somewhere on the high seas. Um, so it's part of, of that respective country's country. Um, so a lot of these Legal arguments have been made around that, and, and a lot of countries have uh, come up with very specific regulations, and there have been a lot of talks about these um, regulations in the past. Now, the problem then is, A, um, the, the legal argument, and how do you actually enforce those regulations that are in place? Because they are at sea, they are somewhere invisible, they are far away. So if something happens, how do you make sure that these regulations that you have in place are actually enforced, that you can actually supervise them? Um, and I think that is problematic to a large large degree um, in, in many cases. Um, but the other, the other thing, and that is even more of a problem, is that many countries don't allow that um, when you're going into certain ports. So they wouldn't allow privately contracted security personnel carrying weapons, carrying ammunition, carrying first aid kits and communications kits, et cetera, et cetera. So basically carrying a lot of military grade equipment and coming into a certain port in a certain country um, when that may be a country that has a problem with insurgent attacks or terrorist groups working on land. Um, so they don't allow that. So in, in many cases, that's uh, even more of a challenge. And there have been some countries where military personnel is instead deployed as, as armed guards. Um, that is working to an extent, but there are a lot of issues with transparency, a lot of issues with um, you know, which companies are actually allowed to supervise or to, to provide that service to shipping companies as a go between um, militaries and, and, and shipping companies, for example. So yeah, I mean, there are a lot of issues with, with transparency around such arrangements, etc. And and again, I mean, we can probably fill two or three podcasts talking about that, because there's a lot of talk about uh, exactly that in, in the Gulf of Guinea at the moment as well. And so have there been any any cases that having uh, private security personnel on the ship actually prevented not prevented but pre responded to an attack um or is it more of a deterrence um deterrence pol um, means because the the way i see it is that um it's a bit like the argument of people that uh would encourage uh individuals being able to own gu own guns at home that it's an act of self-defense but if everyone owns guns does that increase violence or does that prevent violence is it the same kind of reasoning and we're I mean, completely off off base <laughs> no i think you're pretty much on base um it's a i mean that's the the political and and philosophical question around it i mean there's there's been cases i mean first of all yes they are there as a deterrent 
I mean, that's that's the, the main bit there, there to, to fire warning shots in case of a, a potential attack um, and make sure that there's no there's not even an attempt to to actually attack or to actually board that particular ship. There have been cases where that has gone horribly wrong. Um, there has been one case that was pretty well publicized about Italian, in that case, actually Italian Marines, so Italian military personnel. They were working on a, on a tanker. I think that was back in 20, 2012. Um, they were working as armed guards on a tanker, but at the time, the Italian government didn't actually allow privately contracted armed guards. So they did provide military personnel for Italian flag vessels. Um, and they off the coast of India, they actually um, fired at a fishing vessel and they shot and killed some Indian fishermen. And that was a pretty well publicized case because it led to a lot of diplomatic um, kerfuffle basically between India and uh, and Italy. So these these guys were put in prison, but then there were questions about the legality of um, of the fact that the Indian government was involved because it didn't actually take place in territorial waters. So there were a lot of questions around that, a lot of legal questions around this. Um, but at the end of the day, these, these fishermen were shot and um, that was not in an attempted attack against against the ship. So that kind of showed very early on that there's a at least a potential for things to go horribly wrong. Um, there's been some other cases where um, uh, privately contracted armed guards have um, where investigations were made because of um, for example, videos that were made and that were made um, public then, um, and they didn't follow, they clearly didn't follow their own um, rules for the use of force. Um, so that means that you have to fire warning shots to actually warn potential attackers, and they just fired indiscriminately at, at, um, at potentially attacking um, small boats. Um, and nobody's able to say whether this was actually a potential attack or whether these were just fishermen or smugglers who just happened to be close by. So it's it's complicated. But again, the problem then is that all of this takes place somewhere on the high seas. And how do you find out about it? How do you um, ensure that the regulations that you have, which are all well and good, but how do you enforce that? Because a lot of this takes place in an area where it's very invisible, very far away from, from anything that you can see. So um, there are a lot of questions. And uh, yes, there are a lot of good security companies that are trying to you know, do the right thing and they're trying to follow the rules, follow procedures, etc. Um, but essentially, it opens the market to a lot of companies that are operating in gray areas, that are operating in the shadows, that are not so well, that are not following all the procedures um, quite um, stringently, etc., and and enforcement of these regulations is is a is a massive issue. Yeah. Uh, w one last question, if you if you allow, we're conscious of, of how much time you've already taken. Um, of course, we can't have any discussion these days without talking at least shortly about the impact of the um, pandemic on the industry and on the on the business of piracy. So maybe you could just highlight like three to four main points in that regard, how, how, yeah, how the, how the pandemic has uh, impacted it, like on, on both sides, like demand supply, like are there, you said before, less, less um, boats are going to sea in general, but then also more people are probably under economic pressure and might opt for piracy. So I'm, I'm curious to hear you know, what there is. So yeah, talking about the 
pandemic and the impact of the pandemic on on maritime security it's a very good question and i think it's it's different aspects to it so on the one hand there's been a lot of studies or at least some studies that have been publicized um, that were talking about the impact on piracy of previous financial crises or economic crises like asian financial crisis um, also the the last big economic crisis and that kind of led to an increase in the number of piracy attacks broadly speaking but a lot of that was most more or less petty crime um, in certain ports certain anchorages uh, so petty crime meaning basically petty thefts a very opportunistic kind of crime um, when crime rates on land increase that kind of kind of criminal activity also is very likely to increase so this is not a major security threat for sh for shipping companies and i don't think it's a major security threat for seafarers because there's a lot less violence compared to well there's, there's virtually in, in most cases there's no violence even though there's a potential for for violence of course when they are actually confronted etc it's not a very pleasant experience but it's not a major security threat as such um so this is this is one side of the story on the other hand, when you're talking about more sort of organized crime, more violent types of attacks, um, then the problem is that a lot of governments that where that is a problem, they don't have a lot of naval capacities. And a lot of governments will have other spending priorities. So they will need to spend money on healthcare, on economic stimulus packages, et cetera, et cetera. So there's less money to go around for naval assets for spending money on additional ships, additional patrol boats, and even on operational expenses, on making sure that these patrol boats can actually go to sea, can do something, can have fuel and spare parts, etc. So when we're looking at the, the Gulf of Guinea or Western Central Africa, where I'm most familiar with the situation, there's a lot of countries where um, the budget had to be cut due to the impact of the pandemic. Um, and the, the less money that is there is more likely to be spent on, as I said, healthcare, uh, infrastructure, etc. anything that happens on land. And even when you're looking at the security sector on security threats that may be there on land, which are a much more immediate threat for governments and basically governments of, of, around the world because it affects the domestic population. It affects, in some cases, regime stability. Um, so this is something which is much more likely to be prioritized compared to anything that happens at sea, which unfortunately is just very invisible and takes place in an area where it doesn't affect the local population. Yeah, um, it's interesting because, you know, we've been doing this this podcast for what, six months now. And if there's one recurrent theme is that the more invisible the the crime is the more violent and, and gruesome it is um and yeah i guess piracy is just a, another example of that um but i we wanted to perhaps stop there because we, we know we've already gone over time thank you so so much for sharing your your insights with us today and we'll, we'll hope to speak to you very soon let's focus on the diversity of crime that happens out there We know about the BP spill, we know about sort of Captain Phillips Somali style piracy. Thanks for listening to High Seas Tell No Tales with Dr. Dirk Siebels. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned. But there's a lot of other criminality out there. We thought it would be a public service to, to go investigate it.